RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. So it would be fair to say since Reality Check Radio started, I think we're just coming to the end of our eighth week, two months. We've had plenty of email and text traffic regarding our next guest. And that is, of course, uh, the long awaited for some of you, Matt King, who is the leader of Democracy NZ. Well, I said he'd be coming earlier in the week and he's with us now. Matt, welcome to RCR. G'day, Paul. It's lovely to be here. You guys are doing some great work. We couldn't get by without you. That's a fact. Well, thank you so much. And uh, like I say, uh, plenty of traffic uh, from our listeners regarding you. So many of uh, our listeners will be happy to hear you speaking right now. Okay, so this is this is uh, one hell of a year. The last three years have been hell of a years, but this is one hell of a year because it's election year for you. And I'm sure we'll touch on what we've been going through or gone through. But how are you feeling right now? Oh, look, I'm really optimistic. I mean, it's been probably the hardest two or three years of this country's life, except for, I, I guess, World War One and Two. But um, it's, it's, it's been a crazy time. I think Kiwis have had a, a bit of a wake-up call, or some of them have, to what's happened in our country, especially over the last two or three years. And I think there's a lot of people very motivated to, um, to get a change and get our, our, our country back, win our country back and, um, you know, get people – get our rights back and our and some healing and some justice. Yeah. When did you start feeling very uncomfortable? Look, I, I, what happened was, um, I guess, uh, I saw this, this COVID story come out and I, I do a lot. I'm an ex policeman and I'm an ex private investigator and I, I work off my gut a lot and I felt that things, something wasn't quite right in my gut and I didn't know what it was. And it, it started out with them, saying that there was this virus that was such a, a killer virus, but yet 99.97% of people that get it recover. And then you have to be tested to actually know you've got it. And um, and I expected all these doom and gloom stories about all these people dying, and, and it simply wasn't happening. But what I guess was the cruncher for me was the mandates, the vaccine that was developed so quickly and um, all kinds of indemnity given to the the overseas companies that make them and the indemnity, um, given indemnity to, to companies that are convicted criminals, you know, they've been the biggest payouts in history and almost in health history with these guys. So we, we, we're we putting our faith in the company that's been convicted of of the, of, of major fraud um, with, a, with a so-called vaccine that was, um, that, you know, had the shortest possible testing time, if at all. And then they mandated it. And the mandating for me was, was like, what is going on here? Why, why are we, why are we being held to ransom over it? And that, and then, then after that, what I did was I, I realised that the um, the, the cheap um, uh, treatments that are were, were working overseas were, they were forbidden from prescribing them, and I knew I knew then something was not right in the water. That's that was that was what got me the the the, the treatments being, um, I guess, um, cancelled out or. or Restricted, or people were doctors were getting in a lot of trouble for prescribing what they prescribed for many years previously to the advent of COVID. Yeah, um, I, I read your wiki page just you know in my research, and um, I noticed that uh, the mention was made of you talking about alternative treatments, and and it was described as now debunked. It was never debunked, was it? Never, you know, never. And I know, I know, Paul, that you ask these questions, and I know you know the answers to everything I say because you've been on this for a long time. And I thought, I thought you were you were doing some excellent work with that other 
that other uh, platform you used to work for. I won't name it. <laughs> I think you <laughs> but, just have. <laughs> um, yeah, I know, but you didn't. You know, I was being a bit clever there. Um, but what you've done is you've come onto RCR and you've been able to actually be free to speak your mind on this platform and, and on, you know, on this medium of RCR radio. So I know that everything I tell you, you've heard a hundred times before and you already know, but yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I find that, uh, Oh, what you know? What's happened? Uh, the fact that that that, that um, treatments have been suppressed um, and these treatments are not debunked. They actually are working, and they work every day of the week, and they've worked a million times, and they won Nobel prizes, and they continue to work. And there's so many studies, you know, reputable studies overseas with science, scientific and 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 absolutely great outcomes that prove that they're not debunked. That the um, the misinformation that's being spread by our mainstream media and some of our government is is absolutely massively concerning. Yeah, I want to talk about mainstream media because you have to consider that or them this year. Uh, just one more question related to how we've kicked off, and that is you were in Parliament up to 2020, right? Yes. Now, you would have seen the early part of COVID coming together from that inside perspective, did you? Look, I, at that time, when I mean, we went, we were in election mode um, right up until, I guess it was September, October. I can remember, and and so effectively things shut down for for several months. And I was I was given I was the northern seat was considered a crucial seat, and um, I was given a bit of time. So the the, the COVID, we, what we saw was the Health Response Act and the various bits of legislation going through that I, we believe were the most draconian bits of legislation ever. And we could see that coming. But the, at the time that I was in Parliament, mandates weren't there. So I always felt in the back of my mind that, um, you know, we have a choice here and you can choose to go along with the narrative and believe what you believe or you can um, do your homework and realise there's something more to it and and protect yourself. And um, so I always felt that, you know, I can choose what I choose. But then the mandates came in and all the restrictions came in and then I realised that, um, you know, um, we're in a lot of trouble here. Our freedoms are at, at, at risk and and it's a scary time for all of us. And you lost the Northland seat. It looked like you were going to take it. I think you were over 700 votes ahead, and then it flipped around, and, and it was a narrow win for Willow Jean Prime. Were you expecting that? Did you think you'd had it? And 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 what happens when that happens to someone where you think, oh, um, I'm, 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 it looks like I'm here. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah well, I'll tell you, it, it seemed a very unusual election result, like, no one realised that it was going to be the red wave, and the, there was there was there was the drug referendum, and there was the you know the COVID fear, and so when, and we couldn't campaign properly, so there was a lot of a lot of I guess one-off factors that won't be around for the next election or the one after or the one after. So what I found was that the election result was very weird because the the Labour candidate effectively doubled her um, her vote count, and that and, and her vote count for the Northland electorate has never been more than eight or nine thousand votes, and she got seventeen thousand, and um, that was just a real aberration. I don't know where that came from. And I won my seat on the night. I was a, I was a new MP for three weeks until the specials came in, and I was told by various uh, commentators and experts that the seven hundred and sixty odd vote uh, majority I had on election night was was never been overturned. No, no vote over 400 has ever been overturned on the specials. And that, and then, so I was quietly confident that I would, I would survive. But then on, on the specials came out and I got the phone call to say you've lost by 163 votes. And I, fair to say, uh, I, I was in shock for a bit, totally was in shock. But you know what, um, Paul, things are meant to be. They happen for a reason. And I was out, booted out of parliament. 
on the smallest margin of any MP in the country for a reason. And um, this COVID thing's come along and that's enabled me to be to, to, to do what I'm doing now. So I'm a firm believer in, in, in this chaos theory, but there's also things that need to happen the way they are, you know? What made you decide to give this all a go? Because it's a lot. It's a lot to do. You have to have at least some belief that you can get there. Why have you made it you? Well, look, if I'd have just kept my head down and my mouth shut, um, I would have probably been a national MP again. I probably would have been a national MP for a good three terms, maybe four. I would have been, um, I, I, if I'd kept my nose clean, maybe being a minister. You know, I had I had a quite a you know good future ahead of me. And and when this all happened um, and I went out, I what I did was I, I realised that you, sometimes you've just got to do the right thing and you've got to say, you know what, I, I, I want to be on the right side of this. This is really evil, what's happening in this country. And I didn't want to put my, um, my career, I guess, ahead of my principles. And, you know, I've always taught, my old man always taught, told me, you've got to be happy with who looks back at you when you look in the mirror. And I'm very happy with the decision I made. And it's definitely the harder road to home. I mean, we've been on the road for over a year and a bit now, building our brand in 66 meetings. Lots and lots of beautiful people joined the party. Lots of really critical thinking people, compassionate people. In fact, I've lost some people that were friends of mine for years because they couldn't, didn't believe in me, but I gained a whole lot more who are all manner of people of all walks of life, but we've got one thing in common and that we care about each other and we care about our freedoms. Okay, so what have you had to do to take it from now we can do this to where it is now? Because this infrastructure has to be built. You have to have people who are, like you just said, motivated, want to be part of it, and you've got to keep that energy going and build it, and you're still having to build it because you've got a finish line in October. Yep. What's that experience been like? It's been phenomenal, and it's it's kind of really weird, i got to say, Paul. Um, so people have come in across – come into my life at various stages and and I look I look back and I go, well, that wouldn't have happened if that hadn't happened if I hadn't met that person at that time and we connected and we hadn't done that. So a whole lot of things have happened that 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 people have come in and come around us to help us do what we're doing. And I that's why I'm a firm believer in it, it it's fate. And I I believe that um th- these these things happen for a reason. And these people have come into my life and and been and and joined the party and 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 made it happen. So I mean, I started out with the Matt King show with a handful of people around me, and now we've got a bunch of good candidates of, from all all life experience with us that are really passionate as well. And our volunteer network and our and our membership are are from across the political spectrum. There's as many people from the left in our party as in the right. Um, so we're not a right leaning party. We're actually a a, a cross section of people that um, care about our freedom. So we we took it all on. It was a it's a massive journey we're on, and I always say we're We've, we've, we've left base camp now of Everest. We've got our Sherpas and our equipment and, and our, we're, on, we're, on our, we're on a mission up the mountain. We're under no illusions about what we've got, we're facing, but we're quietly confident that we've got enough support to, make, to, to win. And I'll tell you how, if, um, Paul, and that is we're going to try and win the Northern seat. And there's a number of reasons why I think I, I could be successful. Yeah, because that's um, that's a, a bit of a battle, it looks like, anyway. You've got Shane Jones in there, who's got a name and with New Zealand First brand recognition. You've got the incumbent there. You've got the National Party candidate. And you have a situation where 
there could be a sort of like fragmentation of the vote, which doesn't help anyone. Look, I, that's, I, I, I look at it differently, Paul. I think normally it would be a red-blue runoff, right? And the, when the red team's falling, the blue team's rising, and the other way around, right? That would be the normal situation in, in an electorate and, and has been in the past. But because we've got the additional Shane Jones factor, who's never won a seat in his life, but he's been a career politician, um, who got 5,500 votes at the last election after he'd spent millions and millions of dollars all over Northland, about pretty much every town in the in, in Northland has had a had a museum or a bridge or a, or a monument. This or is a, the um, the provincial growth fund. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, talking about. yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot of waste there, but that's for another day. But what he's done is he he splurged a lot of money to try and buy Northland. Um, we've also got a brand new and um, uh, uh, national candidate. We've got um, this is Grant McCallum. Yeah, yeah, lives yep. in the south of the electorate, and then we've got. The, obviously, the incumbent who doubled her votes, but she will be I'm predicting she'll be decimated at this next election. Um, it'll go back to her normal uh, electorate count. So that's that's basically half what she got. Um, and we've also got an ACT MP up here too. He's a listie, but he, you know, he he, you know, he's out there doing it too. So the vote's very much going to be split. And then you've got me. I, I was a one-term MP. I like to think I worked pretty hard for my money, and I had a, had a good rep up there. And here I am, party leader, fighting for the for the electorate again. So, um, you know, it's it's by by no means uh, uh, a done deal. And I'm very very confident that I can make the difference. What's your impression of how the national party is being perceived there at the moment? Because there's a sense in our audience that, you know, it's kind of a uniparty. Not much difference between, you know, Labor, National, maybe a few, you know, tweaks of the needle here or there but not much. Is that sort of traditional support in danger for them at the moment? What's your impression of that? Look, both parties, both the red and the blue party have got some baked on support that'll vote for a blue chihuahua or a red chihuahua. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, that That's just, that goes, they'll, they just will. And that's, that's, that's a given, but I have struck a lot of um, voters in Northland, a lot of staunch gnats up here that are really disillusioned and, I know the National Party spent a bit of time rebranding and their, their colour changed to a little bit of purple, a little bit more purpley, and I go, well, what do you do when you put red with blue? Um, <laughs> so, um, so no, I, I think there's a lot of disgruntled vote from right across the spectrum. There's a lot of Labour people that have been baked on, baked on Labour and voted Labour all their life that said no way, but they can't bring themselves to vote for the Nats, but they said they vote for me. So, I'm, I, you know, like I say, we're doing the, we're doing the work up here. What about how you're polling at the moment? 1.5% in the latest Roy Morgan poll, 1.3% margin of error. I mean, mm. there's time to run yet, but you have to climb that figure quite a bit more. Okay, so Paul, what happened in, in 2017 was ACT got 0.5% and David Seymour won a seat and he got in. And he was a lone ranger for three years. And now he's got eight or nine, or I think it's nine MPs, hasn't he? From one three-year term, he went from 0.5% in one guy to a bunch of MPs. The Maori party in 2020 got 1.2% of the party vote, so they got almost nothing. We actually polled higher than them. We got 1.6 in the, one of the Courier polls. Um, and the, the Maori party got 1.2. They won a seat. They won a seat, so they got two MPs. And now the, the irony is that they potentially could um, hold the balance of power. So the way I look at it is this. I go hard out to win the Northland seat. I'm an insurance policy for 
um, change of government because I've, I've ruled them out, the, the current lot, I've ruled them out. There's no way in hell that I will do a deal with any of them because, uh, to me, they're corrupt and, and um, dangerous. They're a dangerous group now. Um, and I've also so, – so we've got a good chance. You win my seat. If I, get, if I get even what we got now, 1.6, that's two to three MPs with me. That's the balance of power. That gives me huge leverage to uh, make sure that we have a government that respects people's rights and starts correcting some of this dodgy legislation that's been passed over the last two or three years. Just clarify that again. Who are you exactly ruling out? Just so ruling I... out Labour, Greens, the Mary Party. Won't okay, have a so opinion. no deal no matter what? No deal no matter what. No. I can understand why you'd say that, but is that is that wise? Because you could find a weird combination thrown up where you would have to consider that and it becomes a very tough choice. Look, what we've got to do is we've got to let people know, the voters know where we stand and we're standing on principle. And I don't want voters thinking that I will just do what works to get us into power. I, I, we, have, we have to stick to our principles here. And I'm a principled guy because if I wasn't, I would still be a national candidate now. Uh, but I decided, you know what, sometimes you've got to do the right thing, like I said, Paul. And um, there's a lot of people out there doing that. There's a lot of people that have been mandated out that have been suffering, uh, losing their livelihoods. You know, the pain and suffering that's happened in the last two or three years, losing loved ones, not being able to go to funerals, not being able to get home to attend their... Your mum dies and you're like stuck in London. You can't get back to attend your funeral. You know, that, that's that's unbelievably bad. And when you when we know what we know now, Paul, about about its, 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 um, its mortality rates and COVID and, and the actual threat that it was, I I just... I just can't believe that we even did it. The, the idea that you can you can stand meter behind each other in a supermarket, hundred people and queuing up for a supermarket, but you can't you can't go anywhere else. Or you could walk into a cafe with a mask on, sit down and take it off. So all of a sudden, COVID didn't attack you when you were sitting down. There was so many dumb, mad things happening that I just thought we're living in a sort of weird kind of a world. And um, and some people that really I really respected, who I thought was really intelligent. Um, sort of really mocked and blocked me for the position I took, which was just that we need to respect our everyone's individual freedom and right to choose. And I couldn't believe that I was getting such a hard time from people who, whose opinion I respected for, for sticking up for people's rights. I just couldn't believe it. I thought we're going through a period of temporary insanity. Yeah, that's one way of putting it. Now, I had David Seymour here on this program a few days ago, about a week ago now, and I asked him about why he and everyone else stayed in the parliament buildings and didn't come out to the protest. And I'm asking you this because you went there. You you know what it was like. You were, you yep. were there. And you've been a politician in parliament before. And he seemed to think that um, because maybe 1% of them were hostile and schoolgirls couldn't walk down the street without being delayed and people couldn't get parking or go into office buildings, that that was enough to stop him coming out. Can you understand why they would have done that? and suspended the basic concept of being a parliamentarian and representing people in the people's house and staying in there. Can you give us any insight from being on the inside as to why they might have done that? What would have motivated them to do that? It must have been against their base feelings. It must have been. Look, I don't know whether they knew that what they were saying was lies and they were just playing along or whether they genuinely believed the rubbish about the propaganda. But they could just look out the window, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's totally. What they had to do. <laughs> they, 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 absolutely. So I've been a politician. I've stood in the, in the, in the, inside those walls and windows, and I recognise a few of my former colleagues looking down at us. 
And I've been in the blue uniform standing on that line in no man's land. And I was in the absolute best place ever, which was with the, with the rest of my fellow protesters out in the, in the mosh pits, dancing and, and singing and hugging and kissing. And, and, and none of us jumped the barriers and charged onto, into Parliament. None, we didn't even surround the building. If we'd been serious, we could have surrounded the building and stopped them coming and going and causing chaos. But we never did that. We stayed behind these one-metre-high plastic barriers and danced and sang and looked out for each other. And all we wanted those guys to do was come out and speak to us and give us the respect that we deserved and earned. And they say messages like that, that they didn't know what we were about. There was mixed messages and mixed people. There was about a thousand signs saying, dump the mandates, no to the mandates. So you'd have to be an absolute idiot to not know what the crowd was there for. And of course, there was a few different people with a few gripes, but the 98% of the people there were saying, we want our freedoms back. And I walked through that for four days. I went down twice. I walked down there for four days. And I have never felt the love so much in my life. And I can't describe it because I was walking there and amongst people that Normally, I wouldn't probably have had much to do with. They wouldn't really have been, I guess, the kind of people I'd associate with. And all I felt was a bond with them because I knew they were sticking up for our rights as much as I was. And everyone was feeding each other and cleaning up after each other and looking out for each other. I've never struck anything like it ever in my life. And in some ways, I wanted it to carry on. I wanted to, I went down there for four days and I wanted it to carry on. But when I was back here, I came home because I've got a farm to run. I actually got phone calls and messages from cops' wives who were actually down there training. And they gave me the heads up that the police are going in the next morning and to warn everyone. And these, so these were coppers that I didn't know, whose wives got a hold of me on by various means, who had been passing messages on. So I got at least two phone calls from people saying, my husband's down at Pori Rural College or he's down, at, he's down training. They're going in tomorrow. Can you warn everyone? Um, to get out because they're going in. So I did a Facebook Live the night before the um, the, the last day, and I, I spoke to another ex-cop in the live, and I said, look, we think the cops are um, going in, and it's going to be ugly, and please get out if you, if you can. And I and that's the least of it that I could do. And I, it's on record. It's there. And I'm, I'm saying I don't know whether they're going in tomorrow or the next day or whatever, but they're, they're massing in numbers. Something's going to happen, and it's not going to end well. And please, you know, take my advice and get out. We've done our we've done our job. It's interesting you, you talk about the love. I wasn't there, but I was sitting in my little bunker in Auckland watching it all on live feeds. The most incredible thing I've I've watched over that period of time ever on any sort yep. of screen. And you could feel that love even through the screen. So I know I know what you're talking about there. Yep. Uh, we had a political panel here on Friday, and we were talking uh, about the smaller parties. And the point was raised that um, the last party to enter Parliament with no sitting MPs in their lineup was ACT. You might have just mentioned that before, way back, 1996. Yep. So really, not only are you fighting the polls, but you're fighting history in the math. Yeah. Which is even a, you talk about climbing up from the base camp of Everest, you know, um, you've got all <laughs> these things in the way, plus the Hillary step right at the top. Yeah. You know, you're really going to have to, well, I don't want to use the word miracle, but you're going to have to go so hard. Yeah, well, absolutely. But, you know, that's true. But, you know, in 2017, right, I was up against Winston Peters, who's been in Parliament for 30, or 40, 30, 40 years. I mean, he gets so much media coverage. If his dog dies, it's on the front page. That's what happened. And I have a, I have a former new party, and six months later, we're polling at 1.6, which is record-breaking and unheard of. Polling higher than parties that have been around for 10 years or more, 20 years. 
Um, and I and so I came in as a rookie, and I went up against the rock star. Regardless of whether you like him or not, he's got a reputation. He had cameras do, on. Do, him every- do you like him? Do you like him? Look, um, I- <laughs> you put me on the spot. Um, well, I mean, he's a character. That's fair a, enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, look, he's a. Uh, he, he could be likable, but. I don't know him personally. I've interviewed Look, him. I, 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 I've got to say, I, all I'll say to you is that you've got to respect his longevity and what he's done. You've got to respect him for that, whether you like him or not, or whether you agree with him or not. I don't agree with him, and I don't trust him, and I don't think he's been good for the country. But you've got to respect his longevity, and you've got to respect his record. So for, I'll put it that way. So that's a nice way of saying it. Okay. But, but I, I went into the 2017 election as a brand-new rookie, unknown in Northland. I worked my backside off for um, – I went on the road for 12 months. I sold 20 of my best cows, Paul, my best breeding cows, so I could fund my own personal campaign because, obviously, there's only X amount of dollars prior to – Wow, know, the, the that's serious. <laughs> yeah, I did. And I went door-knocking. Um, I went and wore out. I, 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 I campaigned to exhaustion. And I beat him, and I beat him by fifteen hundred votes, and I came in and I made history. And and if if he hadn't got if he got under five percent, I would have been responsible for knocking him out of parliament. But he got seven percent, so it was a Clayton's victory. And then he went on and put the most corrupt government we've ever had into power. Well, he would argue that it was also a handbrake at the same time, you know, to. Excessive. You don't you don't thank the arsonist for putting out the fire, Paul. You don't thank the arsonist for putting out the fire. And that's the way I said he he facilitated, he went against what most of the country wanted. They wanted a centre-right government and uh and a pretty handy one. And um and, and what they did was he, he went with them because you know why he went with them? Because they gave him the kitchen sink. They gave him everything. Are you talking about baubles or just Provincial growth fund, three Policy, billion dollars. Yeah. Okay. yeah, they gave them some racing money. They gave them a whole. They gave them as deputy leader. They gave them, you know, they gave a whole heap of ministers to his little crew. So they bought him. They bought him, and that's the reality. That's the reality. And you know, the sad thing was, Paul, when I first got in, having had had the, I guess, coming into my first term in, in parliament, having beaten Winston, you'd, you'd, that would be a nice sort of chance to have a little bit of a, you know, enjoy revel in the victory, you know. But I was told I had to keep out of the way, um, don't don't go to the media, don't do any interviews, don't do nothing, because they're in the middle of coalition negotiations and they didn't want anything to prejudice because they genuinely thought that he was negotiating with them genuinely. And and we all know now that that was a farce. But So I had to go through the basement and go in the service lift and hide everywhere and avoid the media like the plague when I... When I should have been on the, you know, doing the talk show stuff and and and, and having a little bit of enjoyment. But yeah. You live and you learn. <laughs> you do. All right. Uh, so we'll get on to the media in just a moment because that's another ask uh, for mm. you, uh, given what we know about mainstream media. New Zealand mm. Freedom's Umbrella Party, I guess we can call it a party. They've got a website and they've got mm. colours, purple actually, uh, getting back mm. to that colour. Yeah. Uh, that was announced over the weekend. Brian Tamaki and Sue Gray, the co-leaders. I've yep. spoken to both of them. Sue particularly well, I think Brian's enthusiastic, but Sue particularly enthusiastic about what they're doing, bringing sort of disparate groups together, overcome problems that have been holding them apart. What do you make of them? Look, I I, I don't think it's good karma to criticise another Freedom Party. Um, so what I'd say is um, I don't wish anything bad on them. We have been talking, all the different parties have been talking to try and 
nuts something out. But you know what it boiled down to, Paul? I've got a really good team of candidates and a really good core of people and an engine room and a, and a good board and, and good branding and a good, a good party, a good name. We stand, we, our name is what we stand for. And if I took on any of those other um, groups or parties, I would be diluting our team and I would be having to bump my people down the list. And I've got such good people, I just wasn't prepared to do it. I mean, you've already interviewed one of them, Matt Shelton. Yeah, um, I know Matt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's 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 taken. He's a great he's, guy, Matt. He's a great guy, and one of your biggest um, interviews with the most reach was one of his. I think so. Yeah. Mm. And he's passionate about the cause. And why would I put one of those other people you just mentioned above him on the list and bump him and potentially not have him coming into parliament? Why would I do that? It's just not right. So. One of the things was loyalty to my own crew, and the other one was that we've worked so hard in our in our party that why would I water it down with a, some sort of umbrella-type arrangement? It just didn't work for us. Well, I wasn't quite meaning being part of it, but having, I don't know, a relationship. You don't want to burn bridges, right? Look, I, look I, I, I've, I've, got, I've met with them both, actually. I've met with them both. I've, I've met personally with them both um, and, and had a good yarn with them. And I, I, I just have no issue with them. You know, I just, they're, they're, they're competition for us, you know, which is a bit of a shame. Um, but I don't see joining forces into those big umbrella parties as being the way to go. I think that's a possibility of a, the chance of chaos is high with all those different personalities all together in one group. I can't see it being a long-term solution. But in the scenario where, and it's likely, I mean, what do I know? But just on profile at the moment and the length of time running, that probably Democracy NZ and you have a higher profile, higher brand recognition. If they find it difficult, they'll still have people that could turn and support you. And that's what I mean about not burning. Yeah, bridges. yeah, yeah. Well, what, what we wanted to was we wanted to say to the freedom community, and the freedom community is a massive community. Don't, don't, don't underestimate. There's a lot of people out there. You're, okay, how big? How big? Oh look, I think I think twenty to thirty percent of the country um, are, are either direct freedom fighters or are really unhappy with um, the mandates. There's a lot of people out there that did the right thing or thought they were doing the right thing, but they really begrudge being made to do it. And now they're realising, as as information seeps out, that 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 maybe they might have been sold a pup, you know. So I, I think there's a huge group of people out there that are actually mainstream people, normal, regular people that have voted red or blue all their life that are saying, no, nah, we're looking for something else. Um, I don't think it's the normal 10% that we've had in, in previous elections. I think there's a lot of people out there. Um, any, any, at least that's what I'm finding when I talk, when I have these conversations with people, that's what I'm get, That's what I'm hearing everywhere I go. Okay. I want to get on to policies uh, in a moment too uh, sure. in this chat. Media, you know that, Let's just say it. it's a biased media, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. Look, it is. It is. And it's quite sad because we don't have a democracy when we don't have a fair and balanced media. We've got we've got soldiers like you, Paul, and you know, and Peter Williams and and the others that are all fighting the good fight. And then we've got a whole lot of people that that used to be like I always said to the old man, you know, I said back in the day when Philip Sherry read the TV One News, yeah, I remember you, got, that. you actually got the news. You remember that? We, you got the news. You know, yeah. Paul Holmes, we got the news, even yeah. back, you know, back in the day. And, and if you tried to do anything behind the scenes in a newsroom to work against that, they'd kick you out. Totally, totally. And and it seems that we've descended into a world where um, 
where where disinformation and misinformation and bias and and um, the narrative we call the narrative is 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 overwhelming and, and they're corrupted and it's and like I took a massive hit when I when I spoke out like I just got crucified by I mean I've been if, I don't I haven't seen my Wikipedia page for a long time but you see I get called an anti-vaxxer and I've never been anti-vaxxer I'm anti-mandate and um, I'm pro-choice and um, but we just get labelled that because it's very easy to shut people down by calling them anti this you know if you're if you're pro-women and their rights to to speak and have safe spaces and not compete against men in sport, you're called a anti-trans. And it's like, this that's not right. We're just pro-women. And um, it's very easy to be pro-women, you know? Um, you have, are going to have to navigate around that media because to get to the numbers you need, you need a certain proportion of the population that engages with that media to get your message and to be positive about it despite the layers of what we're talking about in between. Do you think that's possible? Look, um, look. for example, I, I, I actually anticipate RCR Radio is going to go gangbusters. So, um, you know, we might not need anyone else, Paul. But um, <laughs> Well, I have said I, I think we'll be the biggest in the country at some point. But, I mean, that was a pretty bold thing to say. But uh, we'll see. I, I'm, I'm actually confident because you've got some good people working, you know, working behind the scenes and, and, and up front. So you – there's no, you're not, you're not, you're not, you know, there's nothing shabby about you. But, but also, like, for example, I just got interviewed by QA and they're doing a story on, on, um, on the Northern electorate. And that's going to be on Sunday at nine o'clock. And, um, and, and, and the, they came up, Fina Owen came up and did the, did the, did the, um, I guess the story and she interviewed all the candidates and got some footage of us and, and uh, I, I think she's very fair, and I think I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be a balanced reform. Well, it'll all be in the editing. It'll all be in the editing, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they can portray you in the way they like. Whatever the angle was they're going to go for you, that you can't stop that. So I, I've just gone along the lines of Paul. I am what I am, you know, and I'll, and I'll speak my mind. And if they want to spin it that I'm, that I'm some sort of crazy nut job, then that's so be it. That's what it is, you know. Do you think there's enough alternative media then, just speaking to what you said about before about us and, you know, there are those social media platforms, et cetera. Twitter has been unleashed again. Um, you know, people can sort of put their stuff up there without fear of censorship or someone from, I don't know, the five eyes ringing up and <laughs> telling it to be taken down. Do you think there's enough of that now to be able to sort of skirt around that media issue? Look, that the, the was very encouraging when Twitter Twitter was bought out, you know, and then all of a sudden the censorship came off. I mean, there's still censorship, but nowhere near as bad. So you could get so much more information. But but I was talking to someone the other day, some young guy, and he said, oh, I'm getting a lot of clips off Instagram and I'm getting these different bits of information from all over the world, from all these different places. So I, 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 for a while here, I was quite depressed that we were actually being censored so much. Like Facebook, for example, just senses the hell out of everything. Totally, yeah. That we that we couldn't that we were in a real dangerous situation because stuff's going down and no one and no one knows about it because if you sit there and watch the goggle box on at, at what six o'clock, you're actually getting misinformation. You're not getting shown what's going on, and so you have to get it from these other sources. So, I, I, I and some days I'm encouraged and I go, yep, we we've we've got some sources that are free and independent, and then something happens and they get swatted up. So. I mean, we're in a constant battle for um, to get you know to get the actual truth out there. When you see footage being filmed on a base somewhere in Ukraine of a whole lot of very clearly NATO tanks, NATO um, American bombers, um, all that sort of stuff coming in, like high tech stuff, and you go, 
We're at, we're at war. There's a war. It's World War Three. It's NATO against the Russians in Ukraine, and nothing's much is on the news about it that really show that. Or you, well, we're supporting them. We're supporting one of them. We've picked sides, Matt. We're supporting one of them. It's crazy. It's crazy. We should we should stay right out of it because you know what? We don't know what's really going on. And I see a thousand tractors on a highway in in, in, in Netherlands, and then I see the party that was representing the farmers. Um, uh, has got into power. You know, six months ago they didn't exist, and they're now they're the biggest um, party in, in the Netherlands. And I look at that, and that gives me huge hope. You know. Yeah. Okay, let's get on to some some policy stuff now, because I mean, there's the dissatisfaction that is out there that's easy mm-hmm. to be a conduit for. But in the end, if you get into any sort of government, you got to run a country, right? And yes. uh, the issues of running a country don't go away. No. Uh, they're still there. So, okay, let's we address the freedom stuff. And, and just attaching to that in terms of inquiries and accountability, accountability for what's been going on, will you be pressing for that? Absolutely. It's, it'll be a non-negotiable bottom line of any coalition arrangement that we have an actual full inquiry, funded ability to, uh, to enforce witnesses to come forward, you know, subpoena them, um, well, and a, a wide range of uh, – don't narrow it down like the one that the Clayton's one we've got now. It has to look into the whole debacle of COVID, including the mandates, including the actual efficacy of the uh, vaccine, including all the injuries and deaths that have ha- happened from it. We need, to have, uh, we need to have justice, to have healing. Everyone needs to be reinstated and compensated. This is huge. And, and, and release the Pfizer contract and, 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 and I guess acknowledge publicly – that they got it wrong. That this this is big, Paul. This is big, and so it'll be a, an absolute bottom line of any negotiation for me. Okay, then going forward, New Zealand's got to make it in the world. I've talked with Roger Douglas, Richard Preble, a few other people, old timers who say it's it's not good. We're heading in the wrong direction. Fifteen years from now, we'll be basically if we're not already broke. So, how? And you're not going to be probably there. Maybe you could be for that length of time. So what happens in the next five, six years, if you're in, is going to be crucial to our uh, progression as a country. So how do you see New Zealand positioning itself and carrying itself economically and, you know, in the world, if you were anywhere near any levers of power? Look, I think that Governments are really bad at everything they do, so we need less government in our lives. We need less bureaucrats telling us what to do, less regulation. Kiwis will absolutely solve our issues, our problems, if you let Kiwis do what Kiwis do best. So we need to open our doors. Um, We need to uh, deregulate as much as we can. We need to produce everything we can. We need to um, mine every mineral we've got. Um, we, the idea that the refinery at, at um, Marsden Point was shut down and allowed to run down and shut down, leaving, leaving us so vulnerable to refined fuel is just, and to me, economic sabotage. So, so if you were in there you and someone came to you, put that across your desk, you would have said, no, nah, that's not going to happen. Well, what I would have said was, let's do what the Aussies did and try and work out it's a strategic asset. How can we work it out that we can keep it going? And and if it's if it's a, a foreign it's foreign owned obviously, and they are running it down. Let's just work out what we can do to keep this thing keep it active, keep it keep it alive. Um, I also think it's crazy that we're importing um, Indonesian coal yeah. um, when we could have been burning New Zealand gas like we were five years ago. 
Uh, we've got massive fields out there, and we scared the hell out of the industry when we stopped the exploration ban. 2018, it was an act of economic sabotage, um, standing on the steps of parliament and, and stopping banning oil and gas. Like, I'm a green guy, Paul. I've got, I live in an off-grid house. I live in the hills on my farm. You can drink my river water, and I love trees and bush. I'm as green as they come, but I also recognise that we need oil and gas for the foreseeable future. Can we operate um, at the level of agriculture that we're used to and still keep intact some sort of non-polluting reputation, still you know, keep the economic contribution that that industry, and I think it's probably the single biggest earner, isn't it, for us going into the future? Because many are sensing that uh, farming in the, the method we know is being demonised and there's a kind of an attempt to shut it down. And you talked about the Netherlands before that, that maybe there's a lockstep thing going on to do that in as many places as possible. Can we operate and still, you know, look like we're playing our part? Well, for example, you know how we're planting our, our country in pine trees? Because foresters can come in from overseas, buy land, plant trees, lock the gate, claim carbon credits, which is a Ponzi scheme in my view, and, um, and then walk away. And, and they, so they can outbid a dry stock farmer for productive farmland. So I could sell my farm out there to a forester, he can pay a hell of a lot more per hectare than any dry stock farmer ever could, and that's because of the carbon price. The carbon price for pine trees is, is, for emissions is $80 a tonne, right? So if we peg our price at, because it's government set, we peg our price at the average of our five trading partners. That brings it under $20 a tonne, which means that, the, 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 that it's not as economic for a forester to come in and buy farmland and put trees on it. I think putting pine, putting pine trees on productive farmland should be outlawed. We should stop it. And I'm not a, normally a guy that would be for that sort of legislation, but I say pegging the carbon price could have the good effect. But if if that doesn't stop it, then we need to, we need to legislate to stop it because if we continue on that path, we're going to kill our economy and we're going to kill our country and, and it's ecologically a disaster. It's economically a disaster. It's socially a disaster. It's just the worst policy ever. And we're the only country that allow 100% of the uh, carbon emissions to be claimed. We, we're the only country that do that. Health is big. We've talked to many people on, on this radio station I have on this program who have alternative visions for health. And i got to say, a lot of it makes a lot of sense. Hospitals are creaking and groaning. The bill's going up all the time. We're told it's an endless black hole if we want it to be. Will you be thinking about not just maintaining status quo, but kind of, if you're near the levers, kind of reinventing some of the way we do things, ways we do things? Yes, I think we need to relook at our, our health system because if we focus our resources into primary health care, so, you know, get, get it before the cliff, get them before the cliff um, and concentrate on, because once people get to the hospital stage, it's hugely expensive and it's, and it's you know, they're half done for. If you address issues in the community by primary health care, people that have a, have a focus on, on, you know, natural health and, and you know, keeping people at healthy diets, health exercise, um, and not be held to account by um, pharmaceutical, large pharmaceutical companies. We, if we refocus our health, health industry that way, we can get a better outcome because it's all about outcomes. And uh, I see, at the moment, I see a, a hospital system, a health system in crisis. I see, I was in the, in the A&E in Whangarei last week with my father, and I saw all these awesome nurses and 
doctors working away, they were tapped out. They were tapped out, and it was a Monday night. There was about 10 people in the A&E sitting there with bandages and looking really, really unhappy, and all the beds were full all around the treatment area in the, in the actual A&E department, including my father. And I just, I just felt for them, and I felt, you know, I know, I know. I put a post up recently about 14 ambulances ramping in Hamilton at the Hamilton Hospital, where 14 ambulances were sitting there. Some of them for two hours plus couldn't get into the A and E because the A and E was full and tapped out. And they had their patients, and those ambulances were off the road because they could. They had their patients with them, and the, and the, and they couldn't receive it. So that came from someone within St John's who had to speak off the record because they were operational, and they said, "This is just crazy stuff. This is crazy." And you know why? Half the staff, the nurses are mandated. There's not half, I'm saying. There's, there's, a, there's a couple of three or 4,000 nurses that are still mandated that would come back to work tomorrow if they stopped the mandates, but they haven't stopped them. The hospitals still insist you have to be double jabbed to work, and they don't want the nurses back, the ones that stood their ground, because, um, because they they're potentially could say, embarrass them about some of the stuff because they're well aware of what's going on. Okay, and education. I don't need to probably say too much to steer you to what I'm talking about, but there's a lot of concern about what kids are learning in the classroom now. Yes, yes, yes. So, so I think that kids be kids, and um, they don't need to learn about all this um, devious stuff um, at a young age. They need to, you know, I'm, I'm happy for the for kids to learn about reproduction and and all the stuff we used to learn as kids, but they don't need to know about all this other stuff that, that seems to be pushed down on kids and all this gender study stuff. I just think let our kids be kids and let them get on with life. And um, when they're teenagers, yeah, sure, when they're, when they're teenagers, talk to them about and teach them, you know, the rest of the, the rest of the things that are happening around around the world in terms of that. But but kids under like 12, 14, 12 to 13, I mean, they just – it's just some of the stuff I've seen that being taught in the schools now is just unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And I think most Kiwis will agree with me that it's that we've got to stop it. All right. So October it's all on. And because that you have to win that electorate really for your, your strategy for getting in to happen, I suppose you, you have to go all the way, don't you? You can't stop and say, okay, we're not going to make it. Let's, <laughs> let's end it there. You have to go all the way, right? To the day, mm. oh, totally! Like foot I've, on the gas. I've 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 been foot on the gas for for a year now, Paul. I've been all over the country. We've been doing it on a shoestring budget, with you know staying in supporters' homes, um, catching the uh, catching the cheap flights, you know, sitting in airports. We've been doing everything. Um, we've got people that have been buying our flyers, like off our website, like off our shop, paying. We charge cost, of course, and they buy boxes of flyers. Some one woman bought 10,000 flyers and she scoots around in her moped delivering them um, <laughs> wow. in some re- some town in the North Island. And I, and I couldn't believe it when I heard that. You know, I just thought, wow, that's incredible. That ne- that's never happened. Never happened. So we're tapped out. We're foot, foot to the boards. We've got five months to go. We're on a mission. I want to leave nothing in the tank. I want to know that when the election rolls around, I've done everything humanly possible to make this happen. And only until, only when I've done that will I be, will I um, accept the result whatever it may be. Yeah. It's been um, really interesting talking with you, Matt. Thank you for coming on RCR. And uh, we're going to be watching with fascination. This whole thing is really interesting. Thanks, Paul. Um, all the best for you guys. I'm, I can see you guys going up and up and up, and, and we, we salute you. Thank you, and I'm sure we'll chat again. Thanks. Cheers, Paul. Okay. RCR with Paul Brennan. 
Reality Check Radio.